Hello and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with me, Jude Monk McGowan. So today my guest is the opera singer and actor Anna Devon. Anna is an alumni of the illustrious Royal Opera House's Jette Parker Young Artist Programme, the Royal Irish Academy of Music, Guildhall School of Music and Drama and the National Opera Studio. Her extensive credits in the highest sphere of the opera world are too extensive to list. Suffice to say that she has worked all over the world with some of the most illustrious opera venues in Italy, the UK and Australia. She is also deeply passionate about nurturing new talent and gives masterclasses at the Royal Irish Academy of Music in Dublin, as well as coaching the Royal Academy Opera Courses in London. As always, this is a podcast to support the incredible work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. Everything is free at the point of use. Me and Anna really connected on this episode about uh, rehearsal, the rehearsal chat that you have with other artists, the community that uh, a rehearsal room breeds. And what I really enjoyed about the episode was the crossover in terms of uh, what um, me, myself as an actor, the things I look for when I'm developing a character, very similar to the things that Anna looks for when she develops a character. I'm very excited for you to hear this episode. So here we go. Hello, Anna. Hello, Jude. Good evening. <laughs> Good evening. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to have a chat and hear what you have to ask me and what I've got to say about it. <laughs> well, I feel very fortunate because um, as we were discussing just before we went and we started recording, you only do this podcast, of course. Yeah, only dyslexic podcast, yeah. My second one here. So, you know, I could have a career in this. Except you've already yes. started that, so maybe maybe the market's already oversaturated. <laughs> yeah, now, now that I think about it, we've monopolised the market, so there's really no point in, in you trying. But, um, no. but yeah, I'm very grateful. <laughs> very grateful uh, that you came on. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I want to ask, because um, uh, having heard you sing now, um, on a number of different tracks. Um, and if, if anybody hasn't had the immense pleasure of listening to, to Anna sing, you can hear her on Spotify. Um, when did you become aware of having a voice like that? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you, you say having a voice like that, but having a voice like that takes years and years of training and a lot of hard work. Yes. So, um, of course, when did I become aware of the basics? Um, yes, whether I had an instrument, I suppose I changed schools when I was about nine, and uh, the um, the lady who taught the choir encouraged people to learn a song and go and sing at the local Feshko, which are the music competitions in Ireland. Um, so yeah, I learned a song, it was called Somewhere. And I went and I sang at this local singing competition and I got, I think, highly commended or something like that. So, um, yeah, I, it kind of started then. And I, I used to always go in for these competitions every year. And um, it, you know, I always got, I never, I never won, but I always got like second or highly commended or whatever. So I obviously had some kind of talent. Um, and uh, yeah, and then when I went into secondary school, I started singing lessons when I was about 13 um, in Ireland. So, yeah. 
I suppose they all encouraged me to sing. But my mum, I think when I was about, maybe it was before my, I started training my voice at like 13, 14. I mean, realistically, you don't actually need to properly train your voice until you're a bit older. But, you know, started lessons mm. and stuff. She inquired, I think when I was a bit older, of people that she knew in the industry who would listen to me to find out whether I did actually have an instrument that was worth training or worth, you know, putting the work into. Because she said she would never have encouraged me if the consensus was that my instrument, probably the, the bare bones of my instrument wasn't good enough to maybe have a career as a singer. So I am very yeah. grateful for her to that because, you know, that's not always the case. Parents aren't always um, quite so, I suppose, I don't know what the word is for it. There you go, words fail me. Ha, ha. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I um yeah, maybe not so conscientious. My mum was very conscientious in in seeking out that advice when I was young enough so that she wasn't basically pushing a dream or supporting yeah. a dream that was unat- unattainable. So I appreciate yeah. her for that, um, which is great. But uh, yeah, it wasn't until I was a bit older that I actually decided to do it full time because I had, I had um, ideas of becoming a businesswoman and running all these companies. Um, but music got the better of me because I saw an opera when I was six. So I fell in love with opera when I was very young before I even knew I had a voice that was good enough for opera but I did sing when I was little I used to sing and play the piano um before I switched schools and started the singing competitions so it was definitely music and singing and opera were always have been a part of my life for a long time so yeah I mean I mean I want to thank you for finessing my uh, my original question because uh, it was it was <laughs> it was too raw um right. <laughs> yeah when, when when does one find um that raw talent as as you put no I mean it's it's I, there's a great lesson there. Um, I mean, I'm not a parent, but it, it feels like mm. from your mum that was, you know, um, I'm not going to pursue this thing if you don't have the, the, the those raw essentials to do this, to potentially do this, because it is obviously yeah, a commitment. It's also, it's also, a, a, I would, I would assume, quite a large investment in in your child as well, given how how many lessons you'll have, the muscularity you have to develop um, in the diaphragm. Obviously, you're going to have to learn Italian or at least phonetically learn languages in order to sing it. Yeah. Now, I mean, she, but both my parents supported me in terms of I, I was, I had piano lessons and uh, I did recorder and then on to, moved on to the clarinet. So I started piano when I was six. So obviously that is something that they invested in because that was private. That's not part of your education at school. So I did, they paid for my music lessons the whole way through my education at school. But luckily for me, um, in Ireland, uh, when I was doing my undergrad, you I'm not sure if it's still the case now, but you third level education is free in Ireland. So um, I got my free oh, degree right. in Ireland and then I came to the UK and I got a scholarship for my opera course and a scholarship for my studio. So actually, um, the education for me costs were the living costs and actually the amount of time it took me to do the training. You know, I actually didn't leave university or till I was 29 um, wow. which is crazy when you think about it, partly because I did something else first and then took time. So I was older when I was beginning, but like I did seven years of a full-time singing study before I started. Yeah. And then I did a further two years on a young arts program in Covent Garden in London. Um, so like I did an awful lot of training before I actually stepped out and was, I mean, I was earning money professionally the whole way through that, but in terms of actually embarking on a full-scale op- career it's it's an awful lot of training now not every voice requires that much you know everyone's individual I suppose a bit like yes. sports um 
and everyone's body develops differently and everyone's instrument is different. So there's no kind of set formula. But for me, I needed the time and my voice needed the time. Um, so I feel very blessed that I got the scholarships and that I, the um, education is free in Ireland. So uh, it, it would have been a different thing, I think, say, if I'd been in America where the fees are so astronomical, you know, yeah. and I'd still be probably yeah. paying off student, student loans now. So, um, yeah, I do feel very grateful. But um, yeah, so I, uh, I have been blessed in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I should imagine um, that you absolutely fell in love with it. You know, you love the bones of it. Can you recall any of that, that production you talked about when you were six, the first opera that you saw? Yeah, so I'm a visual person, like that, my visual, and I know that in terms of visual learning and all of that. Um, so the things that I remember most about it was, there's just pictures, I, I think the checkered floor, and there was some fluorescent costumes. I remember like bright pink and bright uh, yellow, because it would have been in the 80s, you know, when fluorescent colours were a big thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and yeah. actually I know the singer, she was very she was very young doing this role. It was in The Marriage of Figaro, so Le Notte di Figaro by Mozart, which is yes. a very famous opera. Beautiful, um, beautiful. Yeah, and luckily for me, the role I fell in love with was Susanna, because she's the main character, the main female character, really. Um, and uh, yeah, I fell in love with her, and actually that's the role that I've sung, because yeah, it was the right role to fall in love with, because it was the right role for my voice. But I just loved everything about it. And I, the year after, we went to see uh, Die Zauberflute, the magic flute by Mozart as well. Um, yes. And I have a, a memory of that, another visual memory, where the Pamina, because she gets locked up, um, is locked on a bed with a cage around it. And it reminds me of, there's an ad for like, not Sudafed, I think something like that, where like it gets rid of de a decongestant ad. And I remember when I was older, yes. this ad came out and there's someone in a bed and there's a cage around it. And then they take the tablet and the, and the sides of the cage fall down. And that's what actually happened in the production. And I was like, that's like the production really? I saw when I was like seven. Um, wow. So they're like, musically, I don't have, memories from those productions I have the musical memories I have was from a CD that my dad bought of Mozart Arias it's funny Mozart was obviously what my parents liked and um actually a great thing for me because I sing an awful lot of Mozart um so yeah they're my visual memories but in terms of performance memories and like getting the buzz for performance it was like when I was about 18 um the school that I was in, it was their anniversary. So they did a big concert in the concert hall in Dublin. And uh, I got to sing a solo from the Messiah, which is uh, also great because I sing a lot of Handel now. And I remember going on stage, um, I mean, being pretty petrified, but coming off and just literally the buzz, the adrenaline rush and just being like, oh my God, that was amazing. Because it was like 1,200 people in the audience. Um, I have to do it. But then I changed my mind a few months, a few weeks later and I, I didn't go into it at that stage because I was still adamant I was going to be a businesswoman. <laughs> but here we are <laughs> a long time later and I'm a, I'm a singer. Yeah. Yes. So Mozart has, has clearly played a huge part in your life. I mean, obviously professionally, but then of course, as I say, like in the... In the enjoyment of it, because you know it is, it, you know you're, you're very successful at what you do. But there's there's also um, the fact that it's a vocation. It's something you love, and you've spent you know a good nine years of your life training mm. yourself for. Yeah, I mean, I do love lots of lots of different opera composers. I mean, I just did a finally. We, I just did a, a live stream broadcast uh, last weekend. I finally got to do some work um, of Puccini. 
uh, La Boheme, well which is which is one of my yeah, which is one of my favorite operas. And I haven't sung Puccini in nine years, um, so it was actually brilliant to kind of because I wouldn't be known for singing Puccini. I'm known for singing Baroque and classical repertoire. Um, yes, with a lot of a lot of Handel and Mozart. Um, so yeah, it was really nice to do something different, but also just like I mean, really great opera. Just it just fills me with excitement. But for me, it's all about the live experience. I just love live live music. I'm not one which is ironic given our current situation. I don't really enjoy um, recordings and uh, you know cinema and that kind of thing. I don't know why yeah. it's, I think it's maybe for me, it's the energy of all the people around you. Like I really get a buzz off the people who are all in the audience, you know, watching a show or that kind of thing. Um, when you're on stage, Absolutely. you get the buzz, buzz off the people around you. I mean, as you know, we all know that's what we're all missing so much. But for me, that's yeah. just integral, integral to me as an artist and to, a, as a performer and as a, someone who enjoys going to the opera or going to live music, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just not the same. It really no. isn't the same. Um, it is that the nature of it being ephemeral, being something that's it's here and then it's not. Did it happen at all? You know, was it a sort of a dream? And certainly Completely. opera. I mean, the word opera means opus, to see. And, you know, it is obviously about music, but um, it is about the aesthetic. The scale of it is is, yeah. is just is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, well, the scale in terms of, uh, you know, with the Baroque composers, the orchestration is much lighter and it's much smaller. So the orchestras are actually much smaller than, say, the likes of um, Richard Strauss' Electra. And I remember going to see that when I was in Covent Garden and, like, the the um, the orchestra didn't fit in the pit. So they have to use the box <laughs> of the side of the orchestra to fit the amount of percussion and extra, you know, brass oh, wow. and the double basses. Um, and when you see an orchestra like that and then someone stands up on stage and they can be heard over it, you just think like that was, I, I don't know the exact number of instruments, but it was probably about a hundred and they're all blasting yeah. it out. And then there's somebody on stage just like blasting it out. And you're like, it's unbelievable. Like, like opera isn't for everybody. And I completely get that. Um, and different types, different genres within opera suit different people and their personalities or what they're looking for in a live performance. But like, the actual phenomenon of managing to sing without amplification, when you see it in that setting, sometimes it's just, I mean, it's normal to me, but you just go, how on earth do we do that? <laughs> That's why we yeah. trained for so long, you know, it's, uh, it's yes, quite amazing. Absolutely. I did, um, I did a tour of Italy um, a few years ago of a, of a play um, and we played a lot of um, opera houses. Actually, we played oh, um, yeah. Ancona um, and we played Bergamo, um, and both of which the Bergamo one, which is where we finished the tour, was in the old town. Absolutely stunning. I mean, we so it was a play, but we and we had we were mic'd up because there yeah. was no way <laughs> that I was going no. to technically be able to fill this space. But it was almost like a um, the a ship had been turned upside down, and that was the ceiling for the acoustics, and it oh, was. Wow. I mean, it must have been a good 100 and maybe 200 years old, the theatre. And it, I mean, probably, they're yeah, just, they're all old. They have this, this vibe of um, a church almost, you know, it has a, a reverential, you know, or almost spiritual vibe to it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist, but I do love, yeah. I, I wander into a church whenever I can or a temple of any kind. Yeah. And they do really feel like 
spaces of worship sometimes. Yeah, they do. Yeah, I agree. That's why, they, like singing sacred music, it, the best place for it is in a church or a spiritual place of some sort. It never has the same vibe. I mean, something like that in an opera house, but some of the modern concert halls, you just never get that. I don't know what it is about those places, have something special about them. Maybe it's all the people who've prayed there or the energy, you know, yeah. the coldness, the yeah. echoiness of them, you know, it's, yeah. But I'm sure that you probably could have filled them. It's just that you're not necessarily used to, as an actor, you're not used to filling spaces like that. Because I've done uh, some shows where I've had to do a lot of dialogue in German and in French. Yes. And trying to shout out your dialogue and then move into singing is not very good for the old voce. So you have to be careful. But it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We could, I could probably have done with some acting training in that respect. I actually look back and it's the one thing nobody ever trained me in my speaking voice in terms of how to project well speaking voice, your speaking voice. And actually think it probably should be part of the, the training because there are operas with dialogue in them. You know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean it is again it is that's a whole that's a whole other section, you know, of, of, of learning, a whole other um steep learning curve, certainly at drama school, you know, learning how to um reach the back of the hall with intention, but also, yeah. you know, play the reality of the scene. You know, what if it's an intense scene where you don't want to be overheard but you have to make yourself heard to the back? How do you do that? Yeah. And how do you do that without getting croaky? Because also for me, my speaking voice is actually much lower than my singing voice. So I've always got a bit of a, a switch. I have, been told, yeah. I have been told, maybe I should speak a little bit higher like this. But I naturally just drop down to where I think quite a lot of yeah. Irish people do speak relatively low. Women in particular, mm. you know, our accent is quite grounded in that respect. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's cool. Where in Ireland are you from? I'm from Dublin. Yeah. I mean, we've moved around. We moved around a good bit, but yeah, I'm from Dublin. My, I have a one of my cousins is an actor. He's from Limerick. Um, yeah, so uh, that's yeah. We've got some acting there along the way. I mean, I do consider myself an actress as well, but acting within music rather than within the joy that you guys have is the fact that you can take as much time as you want. That's the. I think for me, that's the yes. biggest difference between being a singing actress and an actress. We don't yes. have a choice because the movie's, music's going to keep on going. I mean, there are, yeah. luckily for me in the repertoire that I sing a lot of, you know, there's recitative, which is basically like heightened speech. And it's uh, done with harpsichord and continuo, which is a cello and sometimes a double bass and a viol. Um, so they, you can actually put more silence into that because it's not a full orchestra playing a piece of music. They, they just have to wait for you. And it's great when you can do that. But most of the time, as a singing actress, we don't get to do that. So I kind of, I'm envious of um, actors having that power to make the decisions to take as much time as they want to when when you can, you know. Well, it's so interesting because um, certain, certain writers, say Pinter, for example, there is an innate musical score to his text. And if you don't hit those notes... It's like you've, you know, you've you've sung a bum note, or you're not in tune. Oh, right, okay. Uh, because they have an inherent um, system, really, of, you know, that line comes after this beat, and that stress falls on 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 that word, uh, and and that pause needs to be extended for that long. Um, mm. And I can't remember his name, but I, I was always told at drama school about this very famous Russian um, theatre director who would stand at the back of the auditorium with a torch. And the actors could see him conducting almost like a conductor. 
Oh, right, brilliant. <laughs> so he'd be, yeah, almost like conducting people's lines and he'd like give people a, um, uh, an instrument, you know, so your, your character's a cello, your character's oh, a, nice. okay. a, a guitar, which obviously works for some people. I mean, I can sing, but my issue is keeping in time. Um, um, I, have a okay. real, I yeah. really struggle with that. Um, and is that because you're dyslexic, do you think? Or it's just natural? I think, I, do you know what? I think it might be. I think there's yeah. sometimes my brain um, sort of has a mini rebellion against, yeah, I don't I, know, order. I can understand that. Like, I fi- I mean, I, I am fine with rhythm on the whole. Actually, for me, the great thing is that I've never struggled to read the music. It's always been the language that has been the thing that I struggle with. Um, yes. But the... Um, yeah, what I, I find amazing, partly because I'm always learning music off copy, is like pianists and, well, all instrumentalists, really, who are reading music, sight reading music, and they get these like rhythms and they always get them right. And I'm like, I, my brain just kind of fudges over those black notes for a second. Um, it doesn't yeah. always see them. And I don't have to sight read so much, so it's it's not really a major issue. And I'm, I know if I practiced, it would be completely fine, but to have that in, internal metronome that goes like that so that you can read the rhythm is, you know, it's a, it actually is a skill, I think, and it's a skill that you can learn. I don't think it's necessarily um, something that's innate. I mean, there is an innate rhythm, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely think it's something that can be practised. Yeah, no, I know. agree. I agree completely. I just, you know, I mean, I would love at some stage to do a musical to have the excuse to um, just practise every single day at nailing it. Yeah, I mean, practice makes perfect. It's true. And actually being a mother, it has, uh, that's the thing that has taught me the most. If you continue to do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, you will master it. <laughs> because yeah. that's what children yeah. do every day. It's fascinating. I'm just like, oh, maybe if I practiced as much as they did at that, I'd be brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't yeah. have the time to spend the whole day practicing something over and over and over again. But it is real. it's a real good lesson in life, in, you know, in that practice yeah. does help. It is. It is. So so you say um the words primarily um with the with the issue. Um so yeah. did you have any help when you when was it apparent that you that you had dyslexia? Was that was that a diagnosis at school? Uh, was it something yeah, you felt um as you were learning? No, it was once again, here comes my mother. I'm grateful for her on this account as well. She uh she noticed when I started reading that I was really not grasping the concepts and um Luckily, it's for my mother and my older sister. There's two of us in the family. My sister's two years older and my sister's more like my mother. They're complete bookworms and they're like really brilliant with language. <laughs> um, yeah. And my mum couldn't understand why I wasn't grasping it at the same rate that my sister had. Now, that was probably a pretty high um, marker because <laughs> she's really, really yeah. great at that kind of stuff. But she thought, what's going on? And she mentioned it to the to the I was in a convent school at that stage and she mentioned it to them and they just were like oh she's in the middle class she's fine you don't need to worry about her but she was like she's like I know that she's got more potential than that um so my mother sent investigated I don't know how she worked out that it was dyslexia I actually must ask her about that um but I remember going to be tested I was about six or seven um and going to get tested in Ireland with the Irish Dyslexia Association so I was diagnosed, oh, wow. I was lucky I was diagnosed early and then my mum got me some, is it called remedial lessons? Is that what they're called? I think so, I could yes. Be com- yeah. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but I, I have that in my head. Um, anyway, 
yeah, I remember going, I didn't really like the lady. And I hated the fact that my poor sister had to be dragged along with the minder and they had to wait outside for 40 <laughs> minutes while I went in to learn about reading and like feel stupid. I just felt stupid because I, I remember at that age thinking, why can I not get this at school? Why do I have to have special attention? I don't want special attention. I just want to do what everyone else is doing, you know? Um, yeah, which I think an awful lot of dyslexics and children feel because children just want to fit in. Children don't want to be different, you know, to yeah. a certain extent. Um, so I was very lucky. And then actually the change of school when I was nine uh, was a big deal for me. We changed schools once again because my sister, they were looking for a secondary school for her and it was actually easier just to move both of us because we moved house. It was easier to move both of us to this junior school. So my sister could then go into the secondary school and I followed on. But they did Freubel teaching. So it was all visual arts and crafts. Um, everything was kind of done in project bases rather than just being stuck reading words and that kind of thing. So I had an amazing teacher called Mrs. Howe who helped me after school. So I ended up staying back a year because my mum had asked, had asked if I could stay back a year because my reading and writing was really not very good. Um, but they wouldn't allow it in the school I was in before. So changing school was brilliant for me. I learned so much in those three years. And actually, when I think back to my education at school, those are the three years I remember the most because we did so much stuff to do with art and um, pictures. And I'm, I now know, I didn't know then, but I now know I'm a visual learner. So if I start everything with pictures um, or colours, um, you know, random patterns, that kind of thing, it really helps me learn. And I remember that stuff so much more than I remember anything else in my education. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Well, it sounds like we need to get your mum on the podcast. Um, yeah, cause... well, my, my, my mum can be quite... Um, you, you might need about 10 hours for the podcast, if that's the case, because she's, <laughs> uh, she's got a lot to say. Oh, maybe we'll do a live stream or something on uh, on Instagram. Um, well, I mean, we've got to thank God for teachers as well. Teachers are great. And yeah. um, having having seismic teachers in our lives is is, is always... Incredible. I mean, I think it's worth saying again, but the they don't get paid enough, certainly in this country, and they don't no. get appreciated enough, given, given the work that they do, given the work that they've had to do in this time, along with um, the NHS, is um, yeah. is massive. Particularly, you know, like you say, there are there's all teachers that make a mark on you. I had another, so that was this teacher, Mrs Howe, who helped me when I was younger, and then there was a teacher called, I think her name was Miss O'Reardon, and I'm pretty sure she was then headhunted by the civil service because she left. She wasn't in the school for very long, but I had her in fifth year, which is the equivalent of the first year of your A-level course in Ireland. So we'd have two years right. for our leaving cert, fifth and sixth year. And yes. she taught me English. And it was the only time in my whole time at school that I understood English class. Um, yeah. All the poems, the books that we read. I finally felt like I wasn't reading some secret code that I didn't understand, you know. Yeah. Um but she ended up leaving, so I didn't have her in my final year. But I basically just did all the stuff that she taught me, and I did that for my exams because I, the other teacher, I like, I could not relate to her, and I just was back to square one. I didn't really understand what she was talking about, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd find it much easier now, but there's a different, you know. I'm a lot older. You learn so much just from life, you know, about yourself and your brain and um, how best to use it, and the fact that actually you're not, you know you're not trying to read a secret quote. You just need to work out what's the best way to read it for you, do you know? Absolutely. I mean, that's yeah. that's a beautiful example. I mean, that someone can unlock something for you which seemingly felt like it wasn't for you. It wasn't something that you were ever going to understand. And then no. somebody... And it's it's so it's such an odd thing to try and um, 
why was it that teacher spoke to you? I mean, it's one would assume they they knew their stuff, they knew the the subject, but they could also yeah. transfer it to you, make it something that resonated with you, made you feel something. I mean, I guess that's yeah. that's what the nature of great performance is as well. It's so interesting that that's that's obviously what you decided to do with your life was um, decode opera, which is for yeah. some people you know, a difficult art form to get your head around. Um, yes, definitely. Sometimes they're texts which are, in Mozart's case, from 1780. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're um, texts which are old and, and about people whose lives we won't recognise. And, yeah. and then you've got to then decipher that for us, make it mean something for us now. Yeah, I mean, for me, the most important thing is to be human and... Uh, like fundamentally humans haven't changed do you know so like once you can actually work out how to make the character that you're trying to portray like relevant I mean the emotions that we all feel yes yeah, society has changed and life is different blah 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 but the raw emotions that we all feel I sincerely doubt that they've changed because humans haven't changed yeah. that much in our you know since even that period you know so for me as a performer yeah. the most important thing is to is to find where that like the raw emotion is. It, what is what is this person feeling? Rather than yeah. impose a character on the surface, I'm all about emoting, and uh, it, that's why also for me that live art form is so important because it's it's you know it, it is about the people that are around you. So for me, like my the the role that I play, say if I'm playing Susanna in the Marriage of Figaro, for example, because we spoke about that. And I've done yeah. three productions of that. So I've, I've sung it like 45 times, which is a lot. Um, yeah. But I've done it with three different Figaro's. No, four different Figaro's because one of them was double cast. So we had two different. So Figaro is the love interest. But every single time I play the role, like the person playing, you probably feel this as well, the person playing opposite me inf informs how I feel as that character because they give me a different energy. So like I can't, I don't play my Susanna regardless of who was on stage with me. For me, it's all about the people around me. And, it, um, you know, how do we react? How is our energy shifting in the space? Um, what does that person make me feel? And then how do I portray that into the character? So the bones of the character, yeah. And what you're actually saying and the words are in the libretto. That's true. But um, for me, the, you know, the, the real essence of the character comes from what's going on in this current situation that you're, you know, the current cast that you're in. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So tell me, was there a particular part that was seminal for you um, recognising that about uh, you as a performer? Because, you know, just like uh, anyone interpreting Shakespeare or any classic piece, um, mm. Sean O'Casey, if, if you're going classic Irish writers, these yeah. are these are characters and stories which are, they're, they're, having a, they're eternal, like Marriage of Figaro, because yeah. there is, there's space for interpretation. Because you bringing that humanity, your own humanity to it, will show something new and different. Or else there'd, there'd only be one seminal piece of, you know, uh, uh, one seminal marriage of Vigor or one Macbeth or one Hamlet. So yeah. was there one, was there one yeah. uh, character that you went, wow, this is it. This is the depth I need to get to every single time I, I get on That's stage. That's a really interesting question. I don't think it, for me, I mean, I'm thinking back, actually, you've just, Pop, it's popped into my head now of a production that I did of The Turn of the Screw, which you'll obviously know, the the Henry James um, book, and it's done as a play yes. as well. 
Yes. So that was written by Benjamin Britten. But I, for me, in terms of finding that, it was to do with unlocking, in a way, unlocking the actress in me and actually finally letting go and realizing you don't need to control everything that's ahead of you on stage. You have to put in the work and the preparation. Now, our preparation, you versus me, is very different because we have to have all of the lines learned off. We have to have all the music learned. So basically, we're ready to perform when we enter the rehearsal space to create the character. Whereas, obviously, with actors, you often have the score there and you, you really learn the score, learn the play and build the character at the same time where we have to learn everything first and then build the character when everything's already learned. So it's a different process. Um, so yeah, actually, I think for me, it was about unlocking, yeah, unlocking the actress in me and realizing that actually my natural innate intentions and trusting them, maybe that came from the fact that I never trusted myself with language because of the difficulties that I had when I was younger. Um, I don't know whether it was that, but I always kind of, when I finally just let go it made such a difference. But I did this production of um, Turn of the Screw and actually was directed by a theatre director, Neil Bartlett. Have you heard of him? He's Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is, yeah. I think it was Neil's first opera. I know that he maybe did some kind of opera scenes or education thing, uh, but I remember it was a big deal for him. Um, so actually, in terms of like unlocking that in me, he was like just the most patient. We had a really, really long rehearsal period and Turn of the Screw is obviously a very complex piece. And the role, I was singing the role of governess. So she's like the main character. But like, I mean, it's a complete mental, like, it just messes with your head. The whole thing with the ghosts and the boy and all of that kind of stuff. So I really feel like he actually unlocked something really deep in me in, yes. in that production. Because he gave me the time and the space. And actually, he never enforced anything on me. And actually, the now that you say, now that I'm talking about it, the few times I have worked with theatre directors, I have actually really enjoyed it because their stands, their standpoint is to try and draw the character naturally what's coming out of you rather than, you know, opera can be such on such a grand scale and have so many elements that the directors sometimes have to actually enforce a structure on it, which I feel like when I've worked with theatre directors, possibly because they were chamber operas rather than big grand scale operas, it's allowed more of me just to like, and be um, improvise and see what comes out, um, and that has been really helpful for me. So actually, I do think that that was probably um, quite an important role for me. I, mean, I haven't sung it since, and I would love to sing it because it's just such an incredible. The mental journey for the character is just incredible. But I remember with Neil. So like this is a, an example. I don't think I've ever been in this situation again. There's a scene in the second act of the opera, the second half of the opera where the two uh, ghosts, uh, Quint and Miss Jessel, are having an argument. And the, it's, I mean, we don't really know whether it's in the in the governess's mind and she's dreaming about it because she's asleep or whether it is actually real. It depends on whether you think the ghosts are real or not. Um, but he basically had me on a chair in the middle of the stage. Um, and the two of them, I was in that chair for nearly six hours that day. So we rehearsed for six hours a day when we're doing opera. And I think I sang, I had this tiny little area at the end of it that was probably only like a minute long. I think I sang for the last 20 minutes of the rehearsal at the end of the day. But he made me sit on the chair for the whole day. And the music uh, and this argument between the other two characters, the tenor and a soprano, was just like endless. And they basically were screaming over me uh, for the whole day. But like he's completely got into my head because I went home that night and we were staying. They now have 
um, it used to be that when you went there, you'd stay in different houses and they'd have all, re- all rented. But somebody donated or something. They now have an old nursing home that they yes. converted into like residence. And so when people are up there studying or whatever, that they can um, stay there and it's got communal areas, whatever. But like I literally couldn't sleep because I thought there was ghosts in my room. And wow. like every time I tried to like I, I tried to go to sleep, I'd have to get up and check the bathroom again and have to check under my bed again because they completely infiltrated my brain. I'd actually forgotten yeah. about that experience until you asked me today. It's amazing how we don't remember these things until someone like jogs our memory. Um, but like thinking back on that, that was in 2009, you know, that's quite a long time ago. And like I had only just left. I was I was in the National Opera Studio, so I was still actually studying. Um, yeah, I mean, it was quite incredible thinking back to it, like that he, he did that. And I mean, now I'd be like, why are you making me sit in this chair all day? But it was kind of ingenious. Yes. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Very smart. I mean, he is obviously a very talented director, but um, he obviously, I, I guess, he didn't tell you, he didn't give you any forewarning that that's that he was going to essentially put you through an ordeal that would um, seriously sort of rock your sanity or or, or make you, I, I suppose, open you up to the potentiality yeah. of um, of spirits, of ghosts in, in, uh, in the rehearsal room. Yeah, so I think maybe that might be he kind of begun to unlock me. So I think it's for me, it's all about the, like unlocking of your, you know, I think when I'm looking at other singers or like it's all about just trying to find like that. Where's your soul? And for me as a an artist and as an audience member, I'm only interested in that. I'm only interested yeah. in someone who's going to go on stage and bear my soul. If their singing is like immaculate and perfect and I feel cold or I don't feel that they've emotionally connected with me enough, I have no interest in being there. It's yeah. it's, it's a real visceral experience for me and nothing else, actually, which may be that sad because sometimes there's some incredible singing and, you know, it can be a very wonderful experience. But I, I, th- I think I just love, that's why I prefer smaller scale operas, actually, because grand opera requires a different, uh, a different type of thing, I think. Partly just the scale of it and everything, but I love, I do love working in an intimate environment. Maybe someday I'll get to just do acting at some point when I'm older. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, I mean, you never have to retire. <laughs> That's, That's the thing true. about acting, as long as you can remember the lines. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. Forgive me if 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 this this isn't your experience of it, but certainly me as an actor, those are those are the times and instances I want to do work, which is. Um, difficult, hard, tests me, um, and really helps me to expose, as you say, my, my humanity. Um, yeah. you know, great, great. I think of great acting, great performances, certainly I've seen in the theater or film or, or yes, uh, in opera It's people who they, they're working in such a way that they're so invested in, in the, the reality that they've constructed the director and, and the other the actors that, they they give themselves away, you know. They betray themselves, yeah. you know. That someone is is not trying to just cry, it's it's in the repression of a cry, you know. That's, yeah. That you see the real humanity of a person, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's why you do it. Do you not think that it's? I feel like it's even more important nowadays than it would have been even twenty or thirty years ago. Like because modern life is so chaotic. I mean, well, it hasn't been for the last year for any of us, but you know. Um, yeah. The speed at which things move, also technology, all of that kind of stuff. The fact that we're all, um, the immediate gratification that we've all become used to in life in terms of you want something, you order it, you get it. Like, 
in a way, more and more that we have of that in our life, the more I think theatre and opera and live performances where you have you go somewhere and you have to stop. And in mm. that two hour, three hour, sometimes with opera, Wagner, six hour um, window, it's just you guys all together and you're just experiencing it. And also I feel like as a, as a singer and an actress, like to actually have the privilege of bringing the audience on a journey so that they actually have a chance to maybe just stop and feel that their their own emotions, whatever it may be. And I, I, um, I think that that's a real privilege that we have as, as artists to like help people, you know, connect with their emotions because we don't always do that nowadays. And I'm sure maybe we didn't always do it, but I think, you know, life is, um, people probably, we probably all feel an awful lot different now than we did a year ago, you know, when this pandemic started, you know, because everybody has been through, something that none of us ever imagined and everyone's experience has been different of it. And like you and me working in the arts, you know, our industry has been somewhat decimated and we've had to deal with the fact that we planned this life for ourselves and then it all just like fell flat in its face in front of us. And, you know, so everybody's gone through different experiences for me. I didn't get to see my family. I finally just saw them last, last month. Hadn't seen any of any of my family for a year because they live in a different country and it wasn't safe to travel and all of that. I finally got to go because of work. Um, you know, so we've all been through those. So actually maybe people are probably more aware of their natural emotions now than they would be normally. But I do think it's a real honor to get to share that with people. And um, I think that's really why I do it. I just love, I just love being emotional with people and like being like connected in a, you know, way that we can't always put into words, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in complete agreement with that. I mean, you know, lots, there was lots of chat, certainly last few years, about streaming, you know, taking over and, and live performance being screened to people's homes. Will they bother coming out? But there's a reason why people need to come together to feel something, to go through that form of catharsis. Um, yeah. You know, I, yeah, um, I, people need to connect with other people spiritually, but there's there's something about the telling of stories and the sharing of stories and, and an outpouring of emotion, which yeah. I think you're completely right because we've suffered collectively. And it's probably the, the biggest collective suffering since the, since probably the second world war, you'd say where yeah. it's, it, where it's unavoidable um, and everyone's experiencing it. And it really, it, suffering does open you up. It really, it certainly does. And it makes you empathize more with other people. And it's a great shame that we haven't yeah. been able to come together and do that. And I, you know, I, I, I'm I'm sure you'll have stuff, uh, hopefully, uh, for around June or July. And I can imagine the atmosphere will be absolutely incredible for those yeah. <laughs> I know. Unreal. I mean, even this performance I did last week, so we didn't have an audience. We did a recording and then a live broadcast. But actually, because it was Bohemus on a large scale, you know, and we had chorus and we had children and we had an orchestra. So there was 115 wow. people in this performance in a theatre, all socially distanced for safety, obviously. Now, the only people who were singing without masks were the singers. And as soon as you stop singing, you have to put your mask back on or whatever. So obviously you need to keep big amounts of space. Luckily, it was a modern theatre, so the air conditioning system was brilliant and it sucks. As soon as it's all coming from outside, it basically sucks the air out. So in terms of um, ventilation, it was brilliant. But actually, because it was on such a large scale and because I could see the chorus in front of me, like... It did, in a way, feel like a performance, um, like a live performance. I mean, it was a live stream, but I didn't feel in any way, um, I didn't feel 
inhibited by the fact that I knew that most of my audience were from behind a screen because we had so many people in the building and it was such a kind of an epic achievement that we got through that and nobody got COVID and we managed to do it safely. Do you know? Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, and to actually do it with an audience in a theater is just like, it's a whole other thing as well. You know, um, it's going to be, yeah, it'll be kind of mind blowing. <laughs> it will you know, be, it will be. I mean, I'm already looking at the gigs which have been postponed um, that, are, that are coming up. Um, I booked to see, um, in London, it's called Backyard Cinema. It's um, a production of Romeo and Juliet. So they show the yeah. film, and then they have a live gospel choir singing along um, with the with the soundtrack. Um, oh wow! And already, I'm I'm so excited about it, and it's and it's August the twenty third or whatever it is. Oh, brilliant! So hopefully, we'll all be relatively well. We'll all be vaccinated by then. A first jab, anyway. So it'll be nice yes. and safe. Exactly. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, one part of, you know, the thing that I've been disappointed so many times in the last year, um, specifically by not being able to get and see my family and introduce my new baby to anybody. Um, yeah. So uh, I actually, I am not mentally in a position to actually look forward to something enough to actually let myself get excited yet. Until I'm actually so doing something, I just don't yeah. believe it's going to happen. Um, yeah. So uh, not to like shine on your or rain on your parade, no. because actually I wish I could be excited, but I just feel like I, I just get too I just get too upset and and just end up in tears for too long. I've I've shed an awful lot of tears in the last year, and I, I just need to protect myself. <laughs> I, yeah, I understand. I mean, I should imagine there's been uh, more than a a couple gigs that um, didn't happen because of because of this last year. Yeah, well, for me, I mean, the timing of my second child could not have been better in a way because she was born in July. Um, so, oh, okay. I mean, I nailed it. I went, I kind of nailed it. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> um, some divine intervention, I think. But um, no, I went from being in, I was in Zurich doing a concert and I had put so much work into it. It was a fantastic music by a guy called Zelenka, a Czech composer, and I'd never heard of him. And, uh, so it was a whole new thing for me. And it was, I had to do an awful lot of work for these. It was a gala concert. Um, and like the week before it was, they announced, oh, you know, they're reducing the capacity of theatres to a thousand, but luckily Zurich only seats up 900 or whatever. So I was like still going. Uh, I, I did a concert in Bournemouth and we had an audience and then I went straight from there to Zurich and I did the concert in Zurich. And then four days later, I flew home the next day and four days later, Zurich the Opera House went black. And then I had some concerts in London and or in Ireland and a few days later they went into lockdown. It was like, no, that's not happening. And then I had a concert in London. It was like, no, that's not happening. And then all of a sudden, so I had like two and a half months of concerts were just cancelled overnight, basically, oh. within the space of a week. Um, so originally I actually had an opera production in that period in Berlin, but I had, had to, I had already had to pull out of it because the la it was a long, um, the shows ran for a long time. So I would have been pregnant and I was playing a virgin. So it wasn't ideal, so I couldn't redo it. <laughs> okay. So I'd already actually yeah. pulled out of that, and I'd already pulled out of another contract in the autumn before in the January. To my dismay, I mean, I really didn't want to pull out of it, but I just felt like it was too soon after the baby was born, and I wasn't going to be um, up to the, you know, I wasn't going to be in the right place to do it. So I pulled out of that. So um, those big two big contracts, luckily, they weren't taken away from me because if that had been the case, I would have been like gutted. I mean, to lose the last two and a half months was awful and then it's just the future really for me so I did have that period of time 
where none of us knew what was happening, where actually I was kind of on maternity leave anyway. Still yeah. grieving and feeling like I've spent my life doing this and am I ever going to get to do it again? And here I am with two children and I can't provide for them. I mean, we're you know, my husband works or whatever, but I've always worked. Yes. I'm not somebody, I'm, I didn't plan to be a stay-at-home mom, you know. Um, but actually the, the first part of the pandemic, those first three months before my second girl came along were actually kind of magical, even though I... You know, emotionally I was all over the place and pregnancy hormones obviously don't help in that <laughs> either but I had this I had this time with my daughter that I hadn't had with my eldest daughter that I hadn't had since she was born or really except for the first three months because I went back to work when she was four months old and I was singing lead roles all over Europe and we traveled I had a full-time live-in nanny who traveled with us and um, once she was a year old so just after lockdown, she stopped, she went home and um, I had these three months to basically be a full time mum. And uh, actually looking back, I feel really grateful that I had that time with her before my second child came along because it was really special. So like there was definitely like for everyone, there's been positive things that have come out of it, even though it's hard, it's hard to see that, you know, the, the, the downsides and the upsides have been quite great in, you know we've had all this time as a family so yeah I mean yeah. But the whole industry thing and the whole theatre thing it's like it's heartbreaking and I just hope that our industry will recover you know because the you know it's not just the theatres and the opera houses and the music venues you know it's all of us the freelancers um yeah. who have had to try and survive in very difficult circumstances I know so many people who are working for supermarkets as delivery drivers you know and like scrambling yeah. to get that job and you've spent all this yeah. time doing a career in something else and you're just basically trying to make ends meet. So, um, yeah, I feel, yeah, very sad for our industry. And I just hope that as a, you know, that we can all power through and find a way forward, you know? I yeah, completely agree. I mean, <laughs> there's, you know, life is complicated and nuanced at any time, you know, this, this last year, as you say, like, it's been tough for our industry. But then, as you say, like, my best friend um, had his first baby last, in, beginning of March of last year. Uh, and yeah. had this time oh. that you know, very few parents are, are going to be able to have. Um, yeah. and, and as you say, you, you, you then had the opportunity to spend more time with your oldest daughter and uh, an extended maternity, uh, if, if you want yeah. to look at it like, in that way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if I could have, in a way, if someone could have said, this is what's going to happen in the future, your industry will get back and you will sing again and there will be live theatre, which we still don't, you know, I'm, we're hoping it's going to happen and things have adapted or whatever. If we could have known that back in last March and not feel like everything just came crashing down in front of us, you know, we'd all been in a much better position, but it was just, everything was unknown. I mean, we're still in a situation. The one thing we've got, to, we've learned from this is that we really don't know what's around the corner. <laughs> You know, kind of we thought That's that true. we were getting somewhere, and then Christmas hit, and then the new year has just been like this second lockdown or third third lockdown, and it's just and the the deaths and the the spike and everything has just been unbelievable. You know, I thought we were coming, we were getting somewhere in the autumn, and then this just hit us all with a ton of bricks. So, I mean, it's a good lesson in life, I suppose, to learn that we don't, you know, have ultimate control, and at the end of the day destiny is going to take some kind of form i think but i'm not yeah. very good at living i know that that's the right thing but it's very hard when you're used to having your diary booked up years in advance to then have nothing you know <laughs> yeah i know i hear you you know that that feeling of like i've spent years and years building something and then to feel like the momentum of it will 
will have will have gone and then and then what's going to happen at the end of it i can i completely understand that um yeah but i mean i've fortunate because so my my godmother is um she's the head of pediatrics at glasgow um okay uh, hospital so she was already you know saying way back last summer like it's going to happen again it's going to be worse they're going to have to lock down the winter will always be terrible and i mean i I knew that but did hit quite badly yeah, I mean, you, there's one thing knowing it, of course, and then there's another thing like when when the actuality hits and you realise there's a part of yourself that you hoped it wasn't going to be true. <laughs> Please, yeah, can the experts exactly. be wrong in this instance? But no. Um, no. But I have just done two weeks' work and had an amazing time. So, like, I've, I actually am now, not to put a dampener, being, like, uh, complaining about it all. Like, I have just had the most two two amazing two weeks making music with singers and instrumentalists and orchestra and chorus. And it's been amazing. So I feel full of hope. And I, in that respect, in regards to our industry, and we will find a way through, you know, we just have to be um, stubborn. We will. I mean, we absolutely will because, because people need it. I mean, it's evidenced by, you know, the amount of people who've been streaming stuff and, and, and watching things. We all need to consume and connect with, with other human beings. Other people. And, and sadly, although you know this particular government uh, clearly don't value artists, um, that's not what the, that's not what the no market comment. says. I mean, no comment. But um, that's people. You know, there's a reason why musicians, artists, actors have endured since ancient Greece. It's because yeah. there's there's that need for all of us to experience um, watching things together um, and, yeah. and stories. And, you know, the most the most important thing about our industry is the fact, and that's become apparent to all of my colleagues and all of my friends, um, is that we are creative. And that's actually to, the, the best thing that we can have at the moment is to try and be creative and think about different things that we can do. What, what other talents do we have that we can use to make enough money to survive? Or, you know, how can we adapt? Um, so luckily we are all creatives and we have that within us. So we just have to trust it and, you know, create. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. speaking of creating, I want to get a sense of what a rehearsal room is like for you. Um, as I mean, obviously I say I was a dyslexic, but it's it's through the specifics of how you work through the more problematic parts of a rehearsal room. Um, so in this instance, the text that hopefully it will speak to other people's experiences. Oh, that's a that's a tricky question. Um, I think, yeah, so sometimes for me, the biggest issue in terms of difficulties is when say I'm struggling with some text um and someone's asking me to change it whether that be musical or the linguistic part of it or the pronunciation um and I feel like in my brain it's just not happening that day and I just need some time like away to actually work it out myself and adjust it and it took me a long time to realize that it's completely okay to just say you know I, I, I've got your notes, I've written them all down, I know what you want me to do, but you need to give me a few days or I need to look at that tonight on my own so that we can just move on. And when I first started off, I always felt like I had to be able to do everything straight away. But then over time, I realized, actually, it's completely fine to do that because it's all a process and you're yeah. entitled to take your process away and work on it if that's what you need. You know, it's not necessary to instantaneously uh, rectify something. And particularly as a, a singer, because as I said before, we prepare so much in advance, like it's really deeply ingrained in our bodies. So you actually have to undo the muscle memory and redo it. 
Um, and if it's something to do with the language, sometimes my brain is just like trying to interfere when actually I'd be better off trusting the muscle memory. And most of the time I'm actually quick and I know what's going on and I should just trust myself. But there's like, you know, that little person that sits on your shoulder that says, oh, you're dyslexic. You're going to get it wrong. <laughs> yes, yes, um, of course. Yeah, you're you're making the mistake because you don't know what you're doing. But actually, that's not true. You do know what you're doing. You're just making a mistake. But I still, to this day, there's a little person sitting on my shoulder telling me that it's because I'm dyslexic. And actually, it could be that I'm just making a mistake. Do you know? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, so I think in terms of that element of the rehearsal room, I think also for me, another thing was, um, now this is to always say when you don't understand and not to feel embarrassed. Because at the end of the day, it's a creative process. And sometimes directors will use, this is one thing I struggled with because I reading, like I do read and I love reading, but I wouldn't have the, the world's greatest vocabulary because I don't tend to read, read books that are like overly flowery because that's where I always struggled. Like if text is very direct and that's one of the joys, actually librettos are spoken dialogue. So um, I struggle an awful lot more with poetry and prose, but um you know, sometimes directors will be asking me to do these things and I actually don't understand the words that they're using just to describe something. And I'm like, I would used to be before, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. And just pretend that I knew what they were talking about and make it up. But like yeah. over time I realized, why am I doing this? I was like, I'm sorry, I don't know what that word means. So I just ask now. <laughs> and I don't really yeah. care if it makes me look stupid because at the end of the day, I know I'm not stupid. Um, And uh, yeah, so just to ask and like, also, the thing is, like, we do all learn in different ways. And the thing, the biggest thing that I learned from being a dyslexic, but also from being a dyslexic singer and actually having to learn how I learn, because that's the only way I was able to become a singer, because I had to learn how to learn foreign languages. And I am actually good at them. I just wasn't good at them at school because I was taught the wrong way for my brain. So yes. um, to realize that also everybody communicates in a different way. So like some director or a conductor or a choreographer might be talking to you about something that they want from you. But actually, I don't really quite get what you're asking me to do because the language they're using or whether that be you understand the language, but the way that they're constructing it doesn't make sense to you. But that that's relevant to any person. You know, it's really important that you like find a way to communicate that's clear because you are trying to create something together. And I, I also, I'm a real collaborator. I love working with people. I have no interest in just doing it on my own. I want to hear what you have to say. Give me notes, you know, tell me your opinion and then we can make an even better performance. I can do an even better performance than if I'm just trying to do it on my own. So to actually just be really open with people and if you don't really get where they're coming from, to just say it and like try and have honest conversations because there isn't always time in the rehearsal room and sometimes people feel that they're being rushed. And I think it's yeah. actually if you can't do it in that moment... Because often, you know, sometimes things can be heightened and it can be the wrong time to ask. You know, find a moment and go and find somebody and sit down and speak to them about it. Because we all want the same thing at the end of the day, which is a great performance and a great production. And to create, uh, you know, wonderful live theatre. So, like, for me, yeah. that's the thing. I think just to be honest and um, not to hide and not to worry, really, about what people think. Um, you know, it's okay to not understand something. And it's taken me a long time to learn that. It did take me a long time. So I hope that anyone who listens to this, like who's younger or who is struggling with something, because I think a lot of dyslexics feel that they need to hide it. And actually, I think that's silly because it, I mean, it's just part of your brain. Your brain just works a certain way. It doesn't mean that there's, you know, there's anything wrong with you. You're just, you just don't, you're just wired slightly differently, you know? 
Absolutely. I think I think you're, you're absolutely bang on. It's, it's not the the world's problem or the educational world's problem that you're dyslexic. It's it's their problem that they do not know how to sufficiently teach uh, your intelligence because it's a different yeah. form of intelligence. It's, it's a different way of learning. And I, I love what you say about taking ownership of of how you learn, learning how it is that you can learn at your best. Yeah. Um, in order so that you can you, you can be empowered and and I mean I I just yeah my um, I was getting emotional listening to you talking about um, oh. <laughs> going going along with what people say you know just you say, oh, yeah, yeah 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 oh, yeah yeah and sort of you're you're sort of giving two performances you're giving the performance uh, of um, you know the character and then you're doing this um, I'm a good um, actor learning uh, uh, you know the notes of my director acting you know and, yeah. and not taking it in and then feeling like oh shit did I give myself away did did he see that I wasn't getting it or she that's that's bad of me yeah. did they did they see that yeah. I wasn't getting it yeah no I just uh, I think we just need to be open and honest I actually feel really grateful that I became a singer in that respect when you like the whole thing about learning your brain because I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have learned that if I wasn't a singer I mean, maybe I would have if I'd ended up going down some other route that challenged me. But like the, my passion for music and for opera is what made me willing to conquer what was this mountain, this Everest of trying to understand language. And yeah. actually, I have it completely within myself to do it. And I've been told by language teachers that I'm actually really good at languages. But I had such a mental block against it that I probably you know, I would really just have steered clear of them if it wasn't that I love music so much and opera that actually it never, in my head, it was never uh, something that would stop me doing it. It was just something I had to do to become an opera yeah. singer. You yeah, know, and I feel re- I'm really happy and really grateful that I did that because it has taught me how to learn and I've had such amazing teachers and help along the way and I've done performance psychology and all of that kind of stuff has made me realise that actually it's okay let's question it is what is what makes my brain click what makes me tick like for me it has to be visual I have to use the kinesthetic like um connect like um I want to say kinesthetic yeah I need to move to learn uh text if I sit in one place I can't learn anything and I think of all those years when I was learning at school and I would sit and at a table with a like piece of paper in front of myself like my brain just can't compute if it's stuck in that I need to like open up the world and use like color and see oh, I walked down that path and there was a bird singing. Okay, well, that's going to remind me about this. And basically find creativity around me to help me learn and make the language live, you know. And I wish that all children, even non-dyslexic children or neurodiverse children, like everybody should be taught. You know, we all learn differently and we're never taught how to work out how do we learn? How is the most yeah. effective way for me to learn this thing? Yeah. And actually, there's just a bog standard way that everyone does it. And I'm just yeah. lucky that I'm a dyslexic and my mother helped me and well, my father, obviously, but my, um, you know, my mum really pushed for me to get the help that I, and then I became a singer that actually I'm really lucky that I was put in a position that's actually taught me that it's completely fine. And I, I just wish that all children and, you know, were taught that we're all different and our brains all work slightly differently regardless of whether we're dyslexic or not dyslexic or whatever we are and actually we just all need to think about what's the best way for us to learn as individuals absolutely i'm, I'm, yeah. I'm exactly the same way when i'm learning a, a script or anything when i'm even working it sort of needing it i need to get up i need to be active because as you say i don't know there's something my brain i just it lends itself more to procrastination or being distracted by just sitting it has to be inside my body 
or else it's not yeah. gonna it's not gonna uh, uh, be in my brain. No, exactly. Yeah, and that's and that's for me when I start uh, like my the brain body connection. Sometimes it's like the brain does a jump, but the body's going no, you've got this, and the brain's going no, are you sure? And then it's like if you trust the body, you're always right, but you have to get it in the body first. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, and I want, I want to close on asking you your aspirations. So um, oh. <laughs> your aspirations, your aspirations for roles and this, you know what, why not as a, as, as a, a singer, but also as an actress, um, things you, challenges you want, want to take on, um, even if you just thought of it now. Um, All right. Yeah. So what this, there is one role that I would love to sing. I don't, I'm not sure that I'll ever sing it. Uh, I think it might be too dramatic for my voice, but like in terms of from an um, acting perspective, um, there's a Janacek opera called Yanufa. And the role of Yanufa is just uh, basically she has a baby and it's it's taken off her and uh, killed. And wow. yeah, it's just like, it's uh, Janacek is incredible. He writes in a real, very direct, dramatic style. It's very much dramatized singing rather than singing for beauty of line and and tunes. And it's such an incredible opera. And the performances I've seen of it have been so touching. And I saw Amanda Rucroft do it in E&O. That was the first production I seen. And she's got this incredible vulnerability on stage. Yes. And she just like completely sold it to me so I would love to sing that because it's just such a the the character is so wonderful I would love to do the governess again um from emotional pers- uh, perspective there is the role um in another opera Verter by Massenet which I will never sing because it's for a mezzo-soprano right um but it's the role of Charlotte and uh she marries she's in love with Verter and he goes off and uh, she ends up marrying, you know, the, the local guy that's good for the family and blah, blah, blah. But they have this incredible love story and the music's amazing and the story of them. But in the end, Verter dies and she's just like, she's written all these letters to him. And it's just, just such a strongly emotion, emotionally connected character. And I would love to play it, but I'll never play it because it's the wrong voice type for me. Um, But yeah, it's just to find those roles where like, the character goes on a, I mean, I tend to play an awful lot of coquettish type roles and like, uh, well, it's been quoted as sex kitten roles sometimes, particularly in the handle repertoire, um, maybe manipulators. But I, as I get older and, uh, like I would love to play more of the roles where, uh, there's some kind of emotional breakdown in it. Yes. Maybe that's a bit, I don't know, not sad of me, just like dramatic of me, but I just find, you know, the, the mental journeys of those type of characters and how do you how do you navigate as a performer those really, really, really deep and dark places in yourself um, enough so that you can actually still perform. And I find that really exciting. Um, Absolutely. Then you, you can push yourself to go to those places. Now, the way I would work as a, uh, the way I work as an actress is, and as a singer, because you have to monitor the voice, the voice, the technique of the voice. You can't just like let it all hang out because you've got to keep your voice going. So I like generally will push myself to those places in the rehearsal room and then go, OK, well, that's far enough. I can't actually go further than that because my voice won't allow it, you know, and then to come yeah. back and find find a way to perform it within the capabilities of your instrument. Um so, yeah, I mean, those are all roles that actually I'm not likely to sing, but connect with me on a, an emotional level. But, like, in terms of stuff that I want to sing, um, I really, really want to play Cleopatra. Um, 
in Julia Cesare. I've um, I've sung the role twice, but in concert, and I've never done it on stage. And I really, really, really want to do it. Um, it's like written for me. Like if Handel wrote a role that was perfect for me, it's the role that's perfect for me. Um, you know, I I just feel like I could bring so much to it, and actually to do a stage production with would be really fantastic. Um, but yeah, I mean, because I haven't been thinking like that at the moment, I like I'm not I I can't really think of any others um, off the top of my head. Like, yeah. Well, we're not gonna. Well, we're not gonna involve ourselves too much in whether or not you know someone will ask you because you know it's an imaginative exercise. And I, but I yeah. do desperately hope that you know a producer is listening and they yeah. and and they do they they do um, fulfill those aspirations because. You know, um, when th- there's some sub- subversive casting, you know, like um, Jimmy Stewart in uh, Vertigo, for example, when you subvert this, you know, Jimmy's this all American man, and in your case, this sex kitten uh, coquette. When you subvert that and you give someone the opportunity to show, to show something else, to show some range, you know, invariably they they can deliver on that. Um, yeah. And it's actually really interesting to see it from the perspective of oh, I. Maybe from a visual perspective, I wouldn't have cast that particular performer as that. And she can bring this. And certainly from what you say about um, your experience um, prior, where you had to play someone who was unhinged and and, and was seeing ghosts, that's certainly something which um, it sounds like you feel like you could bring bring that side of your humanity to bear again. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to. I mean, the one... uh whatchamacallit, uh, restraint, I suppose, as being an opera singer, is that it is to do with how it's been written vocally. It's not just as simple as we wouldn't necessarily... That's one of the annoying things about opera as an art form. Like some of the music, because I is just too heavy and my voice is not capable of singing it, you know. Um, right, but I see. in saying that, I did do... Um, I did another... It was with another theatre um, uh, director, Bajan Shibani. Do you know him? I don't. I don't know. No, I mean he's he's kind of this. He's he's our gener. Well, my generation actually don't know how old you are. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we did it. it was, Thirty-three. Oh, there you go. Yeah, he. We did a modern, um, a modern opera together, and it was only an hour long, and it was like that. It was like she was unhinged, the character, because she'd been through this ordeal. Um, and he did it all. There was only three three singers in it. It was a very basic set, and he did it all by improvisation. He just was like, "Let's just do it again. Let's just do it again. Let's just do it again. Let's just do it again." And I really enjoyed that experience as well. And I got to do it because it was a contemporary piece that had just been written. So yeah, I mean that is one way with these things. But we don't know. I mean, my voice has definitely changed vocally since I had my second child as well. I feel like it's grown again. Um, because you know your whole body shifts and your rib cage changes and everything moves around inside. Um, course, so because yeah. I haven't done a huge amount of singing because I've been we've all been stuck at home, so I haven't got to experiment as much as I'd like to. And um, so it'll be really interesting to see where I am. But like I've got plenty more years in me, and uh, I just need to keep on singing healthily and technically well. And you know what's meant to be will be when I, I believe when it comes to the right roles for me. Um, in that respect. But uh, actually, one that just popped into my head was Blanche in Streetcar Named Desire, because there's a wonderful American composer, Andre Previn, who um, did an opera of it. Yes. And uh, it's a fantastic role. I mean, it'd be amazing to do as well. <laughs> it is. It's an amazing, amazing character. Um, yeah. And again, someone, someone mentally unhinged. <laughs> I know. I, I'm just obviously drawn to, yeah. I suppose because we, I'm a pretty stable person, and I just like yes. to, as it goes, 
I mean, I've been most unstable in the last year because we've all been, you know, the world's been shifted. But um, on the whole, I'm a generally happy person, you know. Um, so actually, I just find those kind of things um, fascinating, you know. Yeah. Well, Anna, I want to thank you so much. Um, you've been a wonderful guest. Thank you. Thank okay. you for, so much for giving us your time. Um, and I very much hope to see you uh, doing your thing very soon, hopefully in one of those parts that, um, that that you'd love to play. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great talking to you and uh, hearing your thoughts on it all, actually. It's just, so ni- it's just so nice to speak to another artist, you know, in depth, like you do in a rehearsal room, you know. So thank yeah. you so much. I really appreciate it. That's a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with me, Jude Monk McGowan. My guest today was the opera singer and actor, Anna Devin. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund. And there are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. And if you really enjoyed this podcast, please go, rate, subscribe, even leave us a little review. It really helps us grow. Thank you.